0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, if we have not met, I'm Sam. It's, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, welcome, welcome. Now, I have something I wanted to do uh, for the next two weeks. I want to study the foundation language in Scripture, uh, the, how it's used and who is the foundation. And before I get started today, I wanted to get real specific. I'm going to be talking specifically about belief, But the teachings we believe in, the ones that we subscribe to, that's uh, all I'm going to be talking about. So there's many things we can discuss with being uh, established and and on a firm foundation with God. And today I want to talk specifically about the things that were taught, both verbally as well as, very importantly, non-verbally. In his book, Emotionally Healthy Spiritualities, Pete Scazzaro talks about the unspoken laws or unspoken beliefs that we absorb in a family. And the thing that's interesting about them is they mostly go unsaid. And so he has this exercise that you should think about what are those things that were taught non-verbally to you growing up and can you articulate them and then see if they stand up to the scrutiny of scripture. And so some of the common ones are to help us understand these uh, that he's seen in his ministry is uh, this belief. Here's one that is a family law that he sees a lot. Uh, Everything is someone's fault. And this is actually the disbelief that bad things can simply happen and no one is to blame. And they'll see this play out in families where um, if a person was raised in this system, if this is an unspoken rule, when something goes bad, the energy that goes into solving the problem is far less than the energy that goes into blame shifting and saying that it wasn't your fault and that you didn't do it and that people tend to do that. So there's one that's common in families. Everything is someone's fault. Uh, Another one is having negative feelings is a sign of moral failing. And this is the belief that if a person uh, is depressed, if a person is angry, frustrated, that it means somewhere along the line in the chain reaction of events that led to here, a mistake was made. They shouldn't feel this way. And so in families like this, you'll see uh, people are far less likely to admit negative feelings. They'll pretend that they feel fine because they don't want the scrutiny. They also can have a hard time figuring out why do they feel negative because deep down they believe I failed somewhere and until I find the hole in the pipe, I'm not going to know what I did. And so they end up searching for something that isn't there and never addressing a problem that could be there. A legitimate, non-sinful reason that a person could be depressed, anxious, angry. Uh, Another one that he sees a lot is needing help means you made a mistake. Help comes to those who screw up is another way of saying it. Because those who plan properly, they don't need it, right? They shouldn't need it. If you had known ahead of time. So it instills instills a few things in people that were raised in this family. And one is very high levels of anxiety, for one. Because uh, every time they need to ask for help, they believe at a deep level, this is one of those areas I screwed up in. I didn't see it coming. I wasn't planning well enough. It promotes shame and anxiety in these people that they can't accept the reality that everyone needs to ask for help. Those who do their best diligence need to ask for help. The relationships that we form when getting help and giving help is critical. It is not a failing at all to need help. Now, I guess we'll end on a positive one, one that he sees that is common as well is uh, honesty leads to mercy. That's something that's established a lot in Christian families, that if a kid comes and rats themselves out, they tend to get in far less trouble than if they were caught. And so I try to instill it. hopefully I'll have honest kids. And what they see is if you're raised in something that deep down, this unspoken teaching you've absorbed from your family is that honesty leads to mercy, you tend to be more honest, you tend to let the problem be known before your little problems become big, fat disasters. And the interesting thing is this about them. They go completely without being said. Our families do not articulate these things. Our friends, wherever we got them. They are held deep within our minds to the point that we feel like this is a fundamental truth or it's a deep reality that I've discovered. And they are kept long, long after we leave our homes. We take them with us into our new homes and found them in new silent teachings. And for Scazzaro, it represents the many voices that are internalized and continue to instruct and direct our lives. We can absorb teaching from that nonverbal way as well as verbal. From the uh, podcasts we listen to, books we read, people we listen to, the the news programs we watch. These things are teaching and instructing, giving us a way of seeing the world. And what we find is that if there's so many voices, both destructive and indestructive, good things like uh, being honest leads to mercy, and bad things like. Uh, only a failure needs help. If these things are taught, what we would really need is one person who, who sits in a judgment seat and parses these things out, edits the opinions to refine what is misleading and what is true. And if we're not careful, we become highly eclectic people with a lot of opinions. There is no continuity across them and you find out you're the one in the, in the editing throne deciding what things you like best and don't like. Yet we're not taught to just go to one source. The scripture says that you can actually learn wisdom from the sun, the moon, and the stars. Proverbs says, look, you sluggard, look at the ants, look at the way that they work. There's this call to wisdom that is meant to be a, a lifelong student, that we would make a classroom out of the life we live in and learn from it. But because there's so much bad advice, and there's also so much good, we need to have some way of editing these two things. I've received some good advice. One thing I heard in uh, Bible college, I don't even remember who said it. I just know I can imagine myself sitting in my seat. Uh, They said, uh, if you do a thing wrong, you'll only have to redo it. So you might as well do it right the first time and be done with it. That really stuck with me because I learned something that day. The laziest thing in the world is to do it right. You don't have to do it again. You're done. And so now if if I'm gonna cut corners, I'm like, I don't wanna do this again. I don't want to be back here in a few months doing this over, so work a little bit harder and uh, take a nap on the couch. It doesn't come up again. It's brilliant. It leverages your laziness against itself. (laughs) Now, that teaching I just quoted, though I learned it at Bible College, I would say um, it would be hard to find something expressly in Scripture that says just that. But I do believe it sounds like godly wisdom, and I think it sounds like something God would want us to do, and I feel that it builds on that right foundation. So how can we have a teachable mind and a discerning mind all at the same time as we build with the right foundations? In this series of foundations, we're going to be looking at a few passages about foundations in Scripture, the theme of foundations in Scripture, and understanding them more. Foundations, uh, they have a very uh, emotional, deep connection in ancient culture. They, they mean something of establishing and founding. And honestly, I think that's preserved in English. We say founding, foundation, founding fathers, Hebrew word being yased. And like founding a city or building a homestead or a temple, it is a, it's like someone comes and, and begins a thing, a pattern that will be replicated all the way up. It starts not just the project itself, but it also sets its boundaries. If you're gonna build a building, you had better have the blueprints figured out before you call in the people to come, dig up the ground and pour the concrete. Because if you decide that you wanna bump that wall out a bit, it is too late. So the foundations, they set this boundary. The Freedom Tower or One World Trade Center has been completed, I got a picture of it here. That's the reconstructed tower after the September 11th attacks. And uh, it has been completed. Finally, it took a long time to get there. Uh, But it has these deep foundations. We can go to the next one. This is taken in the early 2000s when they're digging down. Uh, They say skyscrapers typically one-third of its above-ground height goes underground. But the, 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 the width of it, the length of it where the posts go, that set a pattern that climbs all the way up the building. The entire building is created in the projection of what was started and what was laid at the ground. If they had built it off of it, if they had built it to where it no longer was built according to the foundation, if it tilts to the left, the right, they build a long thing off the side of it, the building would topple and it would fall. It is the beginning, it is the boundary. And that is the way they saw it then. This is the biblical idea of foundations. Is it's a beginning, it's a pattern, and it's a boundary. People wept over the foundations in the day of Ezra when they had laid them at the first time because of this deep image. Because it meant God was establishing himself in Jerusalem again. This is after the exile, after they had been gone. Uh, you know, actually, I looked as long as I could to find one that actually looks like the temple. That's very grand, but it's the only one that has people crying. So see him on the ground there? I think he's crying. Those two, I think, are weeping. They weeped in the passage. You see, they they cried because of the powerful image of the foundations. That after being, they were so unfaithful, they deserved to be exiled. They were pushed out and God brings them back and now there's this great moment to where they had seen, Jeremiah had seen this glory of God leave Jerusalem, and it gets ransacked and destroyed, and now God is reestablishing himself. The establishment is there, and they can see the future that God will live with them again. And It has moral implications as well, because as they lay the foundations, it's their agreement, we will cohabitate with God. He is establishing us, and we are established with him. If the scene of the reconstruction of the new temple were a marriage, the foundation would be the wedding band. It's establishing something new, a boundary and something that they're building on a future they look forward to, that God will be with us again. And it makes you think a little bit, honestly, about where do Orthodox Jews go now to cry and pray? It's the foundations again. The Western Wall, or as we call it in America, the Wailing Wall, that's the foundations of the old temple. And they go there to cry, they go there to pray, in this hope that God will still, and the image still sticks with them, will establish, he will found himself in the city again. It's a rather sad thing when you consider the fact of what the true foundation is. The way to get to the foundation is the one, he said, build your foundations on me. That is the way back to the glory entering Jerusalem again is through Christ. The earth is said to belong to God because he founded its foundations. Another important thing to know. The, the, whoever founds the foundations, there's a way that they, they own it. In the same way that everybody debates, what would the founding fathers say about this or that? Or what did they intend? Because there's this sense, even now in our modern world, that the founder owns it. And though they're long dead, we still debate over them. God establishes its foundations, and what the images and the the poetic understanding, how they would have read it, is that God owns the thing. He administrates it. He leads it. He heals it. He brings it to completeness. And the Psalms are rich with references of God founding his people as well, doing the same thing, establishing them, possessing and owning them, and administrating and building them up. One of the most beautiful pictures of this is in Psalms 40, verse 2. It says, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. And this is about abiding with and being established in God. Not just brought out, not, not crisis fixed. The image is to be foundationed with God. I now stand with him and built with him, and he is established within me. Just like the earth itself, the one whose life is established by God, he administrates, leads, and protects the well-being of that person. So with that in mind, as we understand a little bit about the the rather emotional and deep connection with the foundation images, in particular the Old Testament, I want to read a New Testament passage today. Jesus is speaking, and he's now summarizing a series of teachings with this saying. He says to them in uh, Luke 6, starting in 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my word and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building his house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because uh, it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who Uh, who built a house on ground without a foundation. And the moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. As we think of building on Christ the foundation, there's something interesting, I think. Jesus is extremely quoted. I actually don't know many people that go after historic Jesus. Who say that he was a creep or that he was wrong? We see people do this with every type of spiritual teacher that's out there. But with Jesus, it seems that he's not villainized actually a lot. People seem to think they almost like what he has to say. They certainly don't like his church and they'll go after that. They don't like his followers, they'll go after that. They don't like the way that his words could be interpreted, but few people say Jesus was a terrible person. They don't say he was a loon or an idiot. This was actually C.S. Lewis's point. How can you say he's not a loon or an idiot when he claims to be God incarnate? He's either, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. It seems everyone respects his teaching, but that respect seems to do little for their lives. There's a lot of people who would think that they know exactly what he meant, what he taught, and they would understand that if he was here, he would agree with them, their political side, or how they want to see things done. But we see little fruit in their lives. I guess the question that this passage is seeking to answer is what happens if a Jesus enthusiast doesn't become a practitioner of his teachings? Christ's teaching, it's, it's a wellspring of knowledge. Not only to be uh, listened to, but obeyed, and Christ made Lord. Lordship of Christ, it's the hard part. It's the part that anybody can listen to his teachings and, and like a quote or two, get a tattoo of, of one of the, his sayings on their arm, but living it, obeying it, making him Lord, this is the difficult thing. And if it's skipped, the lives we build don't stand. Jesus' enthusiasm does not stand without submission. Now keep this in mind. A house that's built on the sand and a house that's built on the rock will look completely different until the torrents come. They will. A person's life who, who, who doesn't follow Christ and one who does, they're gonna look the same. Similar homes. They'll both claim to be just as happy. They both have the same kind of Facebook posts. But deep down is where it really matters. And just like a poorly built house, when the shaking comes, destruction could be complete. I wanna show you a brief picture real quick of these kind of foundations that are being referenced here. This is, uh, it's, it's roughly the same era, but actually this is like, this is, the Romans did this. But you can see how deep they had to dig to get to what was some solid ground how much they laid down everything, how difficult this was. Uh, you this is the hardest part of building a home then. Now just some guy comes out into Kubota and they bring out a concrete dude and it's, it's, they're all on machines. It's the guys that have to climb up in the attic. I wouldn't want to do that job. If I'm sitting on a thing doing this, that's the job I want. Back then, there was no Kubota. People dug it themselves. It was the hardest work. A common thing you might have heard from someone running a site project is they would have said things like, once we find the solid ground underneath, everything will be easier. Everything will get a lot easier. It's a lot easier to do the whole brick and mortar thing, but this part stinks. And honestly, Jesus' analogy here of those who build on sand and those who build on rock, he's not making this up. People actually did that, just as people do today. People cut corners when building buildings back then. And if you built in an area that you thought there was not ever going to be a flash flood, or if you were in a hurry and thought no one was going to use that building for very long, they wouldn't dig. They would just lay it out, and it would look fine. The building would look fine. But it had no depth. It had no foundation. Nothing it laid on that stayed still. Laying these foundations, is a crucible of the establishment. It's the hard part. It's the going deep and applying it to self. You know, one of the teachings that this is, when Jesus is closing this out, the statement summarizes a few teachings. And one of them is the the picture of the man that's trying to take the speck of sawdust out of his brother's eye. Jesus says that uh, some of you go up to someone and you see a speck of, of wood in their eye and you say, let me take that out. You don't realize all the while you've got an enormous plank in your eye. In fact, Jesus, I think, is making a joke because the word in Greek means enormous chunk of lumber. Um, you're impaled. Uh, and, the, and so what you need to do is, is take first it out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to help someone else. If you hear my teaching today, apply it first to yourself, let it go down deep to where it's applied, and you're following my leadership, and then you can actually do something. Then it becomes real. The gospel is not meant to be mused or marveled at. It is amazing. It, it's marvel-worthy. It's amazing its marvel worthy But it is not meant to be amazed, mused, marveled at. It's meant to be applied to our lives and obeyed. And if you're wondering, is that you? The evidence of it in scripture is a changed life, ever-changing lives, changing all the time. So my first tough question to you is, when was the last time you perceived that you really changed? Really changed to where you, you thought, man, a year ago, if my spouse would have yelled at me like that, I would have blasted them right back. But I... God must have a leash on my heart because now I'm acting very different. Or I can think of a a while ago, my practices, my habits, the things I was given to, and how deeply I'm being changed. There may be a need to ask yourself, am I still building on that foundation? Or have I gone out and built additions, other teachings, other understandings that are not on such solid ground, and do I follow them with my life? Because if you're built with Christ and you're with him, change is something you could expect. When was the last time that you really perceived you changed? Now, these waters that are coming, they have an echoing meaning, kind of two in one. Yes, they are the shaking of life. The things that we expect of disaster and hardship, the things that sneak up on us, they are those things, but it has this echoing meaning of also being judgment day. The final judgment when things are really revealed. A common image in ancient text, and it repeats itself in our Bible as well, is this idea of judgment being so severe the foundations are exposed. That a city would be, we even use the term a little bit today, a city would be raised, meaning that you would lift up its foundations, that it would be exposed. How steady, how strong, how deep did you build your civilization? Did you build this city? If you did not build it well enough, it will be washed away, you will be disestablished, and the earth will forget you are ever here. And it's this picture of judgment coming to find out what are you built on. When the hard times come, do your, do your roots go deep enough that you can stand on solid ground and you're unchanged, or are you swept away? Because if you're established, in Christ, you will stand and have hope on the other side of terror. There are times of disaster and shaking in our life that uh, we find that all we really have left is our eternal hope, that there's not a lot left to comfort us. And this is when disappointment is just, it's total, and it's, and it's all we have is just God. I remember when I had my second brain surgery, there was day two when the bones are healing, they press against each other, unbelievable pain. They were giving me every drop of morphine they could. They were giving me Dilaudid. And when you're on that much painkiller, you get what's called breathing depression, which is where uh, you actually can't breathe very easily, especially when you fall asleep. So I was up for just all these hours, couldn't fall asleep. It's like mega sleep apnea because you have to wake up to breathe. And I remember just being totally miserable. Nobody could help me. You ever feel that feeling, no one can help you? The, nerv- the, the, the nervousness of the nurses at the foot of my bed talking and being like, okay, well, he can't even get morphine for another two hours. And they're trying to figure out what they're going to do because I'm clearly in significant pain. And I remember I, in that moment, honestly, there's a point where I thought, man, I wish I just would have died in the surgery. I'm really glad that God never grants our wishes when we're at our worst. But I had this moment and I saw it in my mind's eye. Or I guess you could say my spirit's eye. And it was, it was me laying in that hospital bed with the and the sound of things pumping on my legs and everything that was going on. And I was in so much pain. And um, in my mind, I saw in the bed next to me, bandages just like me, just in the same amount of pain was Jesus who literally bore my pain on the cross. And in that moment, it was so important because I wasn't alone In that space, nothing else made me feel better at that hard time than my eternal hope. There's a lot of times that that happens. We find ourselves pushed to such a, a place that the only thing that really remains is our eternal hope. And where do we go? Do we land at God's feet? Where do we go? That's a very good telling sign of how much your life is built on the instruction, teaching, and wisdom of God. That when the hard times hit and you're washed away, does the foundation stand? Do you have somewhere to go? Do you have one to rely on? Did you wash up at the feet of Jesus? There's this scene in the Simpsons movie that's, that's funny, uh, but everybody thinks something like they're gonna die. They think doomsday is upon us. Everyone in the bar screams and they run into the church. And everyone in the church screams and they run into the bar <laughs> and they just switch spots. And while it's, it's sure, it's unnecessarily humorous, in your last shaking, I want you to think about that. When things got really bad, when there wasn't an answer and no one could make you feel better, where did you go? Did you, did you end up with God? It's a tough decision, but think of those moments. Because I really do think one of Jesus's points here of using this dual image, it's definitely speaking of judgment day, definitely speaking of the shakings of life, is this point is the shaking of life that shakes it and you find out what am I really standing on? How firm is my hope? Who do I really hope? And how have I built this life? Are my beliefs standing up? They are a dress rehearsal for judgment day. They are a dress rehearsal for the things that will really matter. It's worth it to keep in mind. His whole point comes back to the first verse we read in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? To build an unshaken life, you must obey. What separates the Jesus enthusiast from a Christian is that the Christian makes Jesus their Lord, that he can edit everything. He can he can steer the ship and he can change things that will dramatically redirect your life. What matters in the end will be obedience. Christ's right to command the job site and your beliefs to say, "Look, here's the blueprint, here's the wisdom, here's the teaching." Are you building on it? Anybody ever watched Tidying Up with Marie Kondo? And watch that. So this is Marie Kondo. Look how clean she is. She's a very clean person. Um, She's from Japan. She had a show there that was such a hit, they brought it here. And she goes to people's homes and she helps them just declutter and clean up. And she's got the steps. She always does the same thing. But one of the things she does is she tells people, take your your personal belongings and hold them in your hand, one at a time. And uh, this would take many of us years to do. Uh, (laughs) She had no idea what she was buying in. She left Japan and came to America. Um... You're supposed to hold it and you have to ask yourself, does this bring me joy? And that's the crucible. And if the answer is no, it goes there. And if the answer is yes, it goes over here. I would venture to say this passage is a similar invitation that we would hold every belief that we have, everything that was taught to us, things that we could quote, the things that are are so deep. We learned it from osmosis. We learned it non-verbally that we could hold it in our hands and say, does it build on Christ's teaching or does it build off of it? Does it build on his wisdom? Is it congruent with what he said or am I building away from it? Because I know that if I venture off of the firm foundation of what he taught in scripture, that part of my life is not gonna stand when the shaking comes. All truth must fit on his foundation and his teaching, his wisdom alone. All wisdom that does not fit his blueprint must be discarded. And that is the moment he becomes Lord. When honestly, the teachings and things of your life is augmented not just in the question we ask, but it's not in our hands, it's in his. We say, God, Christ, does this fit your teachings? You are the Lord of all things. If it does not fit, I will push it out. If it does not fit, I am willing to forsake beliefs, opinions, and teachings I've held onto my entire life because you are Lord. Because in the end, everything that is tested and any wisdom that is not on the solid rock is washed away. But anything that is on it, its foundations, the things that build on Christ's teaching, they stand forever. That was the question when they got together to canonize scripture. Were the writings of Paul building on Christ's gospel teachings or are they building apart from it? And they studied his word. They looked through it and they said he was building on. Everything that is built on the words of Christ will stand. And so we have to do something very frightening. We have to let him edit every belief we have. He alone, not me, your pastor not the denomination, not some fancy book. It's going to have to come from the Lord. And when we give him that kind of control and we say, you're the Lord of all things, my beliefs, the things that I'm going to pursue, the things I'm going to follow, the life that these beliefs will produce are all yours. We will be those that say to him, Lord, Lord. And he will say, you have called me well because I have been your Lord all the days of your life. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us grow. That our obedience would be to Christ alone. That he would be the Lord of our life. The one on top, the one who can edit every other opinion, every author we admire, every teacher we respect, that he would stand at the top. Lord, give us courage to reevaluate our lives, as frightening as it might be. That we could have uh, courage to edit them. That if you say get rid of it, it wasn't worth keeping. We could have a life that is built in such a way that it cannot be shaken not now in the shakings of life and not through eternity but that by following your teaching by building on your foundation alone we would build something in this carnal life that matters for eternity help us to follow you and have faith in every head bowed and every eyes closed, I'd I'd said that what separates a Christian enthusiast or a a Christ enthusiast from a Christian is his lordship, his right to command your life. That is is the point that we become his. We confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. We believe not that he was a wise teacher. We don't believe that he had good things to say or that... uh, He's some spiritual guru. It is held in faith that he is God incarnate and Lord of our lives. If you feel that today in your heart, that today is the day that he is no longer simply one that you admire and look to, but you wish to make him the Lord of your life, that your faith says, I believe he is the Son of God. I believe he is the Lord, and I want to give him the keys to my entire life to step across those that just respect the teachings of Christ to becoming a Christian. I want to give you that opportunity today. I'm going to have you raise your hand. You can put it back down. I'm going to pray for you. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to uh, take off for the day. So if that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Right now, I'm going to give you a moment to respond and say, yes, I want the Lordship of Christ in my life. Let's pray together. I want everyone to, Jesus, I declare that you are the Son of God and Lord of my life. Every inch of it. Lead me back to the Father. And ransom my